Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 5. The passage that Adam just read will be our text this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The title of the sermon this morning is taken from verse 11 in this text. Forsake all and follow Christ. In this text we see the circumstances of Jesus calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him and be fishers of men. And as we work through this text, we will see the power of God, the fear of God, and the call of God. The power of God, the fear of God, and the call of God. And while there are many lessons to be gleaned from this text, I want us to focus on this main application. God wants us to forsake all and follow him. Forsake all and follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, again we ask that our hearts would be humble, that we would be broken before your word, or that your Holy Spirit would work in and through the word and convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Lord, may we be conformed more and more into the image of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And then may we go out from this gathering to honor and glorify you in our day-to-day lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first we see in this text the power of God. The power of God and the miracle of Jesus performed in these verses. Verse 1 begins by telling us, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, the crowd was pressing upon Jesus. Now, the word that's used here, it could refer to a a demand or an imposition, or it could refer also to a physical pressing, as if the crowd was pushing to be near Jesus and pressing upon him. And it seems that it was a physical pressing because we see later in this text that Jesus went into a boat to separate himself from this crowd in order to teach them. And the pressing of the crowd is what made this separation necessary. Now, there are several times in the Gospels where we see Jesus pressed upon by crowds. At times he was pressed upon by crowds as they were eager to see his miracles. We saw something like that at the end of Luke chapter 4, when the people of Capernaum sought for Jesus, came to him, and stayed him, or laid hold of him. They did not want Jesus to leave their city because of the miracles he had so recently performed there. They were eager to see his miracles, and so they pressed upon him. At other times, the crowds pressed upon Jesus with the intent to do him harm. We saw an example of this also in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus visited his hometown of Nazareth. And there, the crowd became angry at his words, and they thrust him out of the synagogue and to the brow of the hill, where they intended to throw him off headlong. They were angry, and so they pressed upon Jesus. But in our text this morning, we see yet another reason for the crowd to be pressing upon Jesus. We're told they pressed upon Him to hear the Word of God. This is a good reason to press upon Jesus. And a question for us, do we press like this upon the Lord? Are we eager and hungry to hear His Word? At this point in Jesus' ministry, the crowds were eager to hear the Word of God from Him. But this would not always be the case. There would come a time when the multitudes would forsake Jesus because he taught them 
hard things. Things that were hard to hear and hard for them to accept. We don't gather every Sunday at this church building to hear the Word of God directly from the mouth of Jesus. But we do gather to hear the Word of God. And the written Word is no less authoritative than the words of Jesus when He was speaking here on earth. Oh, that we would press in to hear the Word of God. That nothing would turn us aside from this act of worship as we hear the Word of God and we heed the Word of God. And verses 1 and 2 go on to further set this scene for us. The end of verse 1 tells us that he stood by the lake Gennesaret. This is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. There was a small city and a very fertile plain at the northwest end of the lake that bore this name. And it was common for the people of that region to refer to the lake by this name as well, Gennesaret. Now the beginning of verse 2 tells us that there were two small ships standing there by the lake. Now relatively recent archaeology has given us an excellent idea of exactly what these sort of fishing vessels would have been like. In 1985, a first century fishing boat was found buried in the mud along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The boat was 27 feet wide, or excuse me, long, 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four feet deep. So for a little bit of context, a boat that size would have fit in the choir loft behind me. There were two boats like this, two small fishing vessels like this that were pulled up on the shore near where Jesus was being pressed upon by the crowd. And we're told also that these boats were empty. These boats were empty. The second part of verse 2 says, The fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. The fishermen were present, but they were not in the boats. They were there on the shore, washing their nets, mending their nets. And notice that these fishermen, they were not part of the crowd that was pressing upon Jesus. These were working men, and they were busy in their business. They had toiled all night out in their boats fishing, and now it was day and their work continued as they cleaned and mended their nets and prepared for another night of fishing. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that these men had been with Jesus earlier in his ministry. In John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, we read, One of the two which heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, and followed him, that's Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So this was previous to the events that happened in our text this morning. So we see that they had some acquaintance with Jesus. They had not yet been, to, been called to follow Jesus and to attend to him as his disciples constantly. But they had some interaction with Jesus previously. Andrew even going so far as to say, we have found the Messiah. But they had gone back to their work as fishermen. Now verse 3 tells us that Jesus used one of these boats as a teaching platform. He entered into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon Peter. And once Jesus was in that boat, he asked Peter to push it a little ways out from the land. And when Jesus had this slight separation from the crowd, which had been pressing upon him, he assumed that posture of a teacher. He sat down and he taught the crowd. Now when Jesus was finished teaching, he told Simon to let down his nets. Read verse 4 with me. 
Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought. Now, look at Simon's reply there in verse 5. Now, we know Peter, as we have seen him in the Gospels. And we often think of Peter as the sort of man who speaks his mind. He speaks often very directly. And look at how he began here in verse 5. Simon answered and said unto him, Master, Master. This is a term of respect. It's not the word that was normally used for rabbi, but it is similar. It's an academic term. It expresses the idea of master teacher. It does not express the idea of master fisherman. And so, Simon Peter continued, We have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Again, Peter and his partners, they are fishermen by trade. This is what they did, most likely six days a week. They have been doing this their whole lives. They are the experts when it comes to fishing. And so Peter says, Jesus, we've tried. Master, we've tried all night, and we haven't caught anything. Night fishing was the most common method of fishing at the time, as it was the easiest. They would go out at night, and the larger fish would come up into the shallower water to feed. And they would sometimes hang torches off the sides of their boats in the hope that it would help attract the fish, and they could use their nets more effectively. But the previous night, Peter and his partners, they had met with no success. They had tried all night. They had, Peter uses the word here, toiled, worked hard at this business all night. And they had no success. They did not catch anything. But Peter goes on in verse 5 and he says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. Peter almost sounds reluctant. We've tried all night and failed. But if you want us to, Lord, we'll try again. Now in verses 6 and 7 we see the miracle of this text, which demonstrates the power of God as Jesus worked. They let down their nets, we're told, in verse 6, and enclosed a great multitude of fish. They had caught nothing all night, and now they had a great multitude in their nets. So many that their net began to break. The load of fish was too great. They couldn't bring it in all by themselves. And they called upon their partners in the other ship to come and help them. And they filled both ships so that they both began to sink. It had gone from a fruitless day to the most productive day of fishing that Peter had ever had in his life up to that point. And this miracle, it demonstrates Christ's power over nature. Even the fish in the lake obeyed him. Like the ravens that fed Elijah or the great fish that swallowed Jonah... So the fish in the Sea of Galilee perfectly obeyed the will of their Creator. And when Jesus told Peter to let down his net, there was a great multitude of fish there waiting to be caught. This was not a natural occurrence. This was supernatural. And it was immediately recognized as such by the people who were there. They immediately recognized this as a miracle. And it demonstrated to them the power of God exercised by Jesus Christ. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Was it to show gratitude toward Peter for letting him use his boat? Some people have suggested that. Maybe as Jesus was teaching, he could tell that Peter was agitated because he hadn't caught anything the night before. Jesus wanted to relieve that agitation. 
Maybe Peter needed a good catch of fish. Maybe he had some financial pressure, and he needed that good catch, and the lake just had not provided. I don't think that's why Jesus performed this miracle. Jesus performed this miracle to demonstrate the power of God, specifically to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we see this in the response of Peter. In verses 8 through the first part of verse 10, we see the fear of God. The fear of God. Now, there are many facets to the biblical idea of the fear of God. Brother Bell taught a good lesson on this yesterday morning for our men's Bible study from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. But the facet that we see in this text is the fear that comes over a sinner when God's power and holiness is revealed to them. Now, verse 8 begins, when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw it. So here he is, out on this boat with Jesus, and Jesus has let down your net. Peter lets down his net. He's been unsuccessful all night, but now he has this huge catch of fish, and they've loaded their boats. And Peter, it's like he pauses and he sees what's happened here. When Simon Peter saw it, now keep in mind, Peter must have been tired, exhausted even. He was up all night fishing. He has now been mending his net and cleaning his nets all this time that Jesus had been teaching. Jesus asked him to put his net back in the water, and so Peter rowed the boat back out to the deep water and put his net in. And now he has these two boats with the greatest catch of his life. We're told that Peter... When he saw it. So he takes a moment here and he takes us all in. He saw this great catch of fish and he was amazed. He said, boy, master, I thought that I knew how to fish. But I see you possess a superior method. He said, Jesus, if you would, uh, please come back tomorrow morning. And you can use my boat for as long as you like. And just tell me when to put my net down at the end. He says, Jesus, you know, we should become partners in this. We'll do a 50-50 split. I'll do all the work. You just tell me when and where to put down the net. You know, it's often how we act toward the Lord, isn't it? Lord, I want your provision. Lord, I want you to smooth out the bumps in my life. Lord, I want you to fill my net. Just tell me, Lord, how I can grease your palm and get from you what I want. This is often how we act. But look at how Peter responds to this incredible demonstration of the power of God and the miracle of Jesus. Peter doesn't say to Jesus, fill my net. He says, depart from me. Depart from me. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. He fell down before Jesus. All throughout Scripture, when people come face to face with some visible manifestation of God's power, they respond exactly like this. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And Peter is no exception. He fell down before Jesus. And in that position, Peter makes this confession. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's confession brings to mind Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In this moment, Peter became keenly aware of two things. First, that Jesus was holy, and second, that he, Peter, was sinful. Verse 9 tells us, For he was astonished 
and all that were with him. This word astonished is frequently associated with terror. Terror. For example, we see this same word used to describe Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verse 6. After the Lord has knocked Saul down as he's going to Damascus, he is described there in Acts 9, 6 as trembling and astonished. Astonished, that same word. And Peter in this text, Peter is afraid. Jesus has just performed a miracle for Peter and his fishing partners. It was a miracle of provision. It was a miracle of wealth creation. But they are not happy. They are terrified. And rightly so. We're often very cavalier in our attitudes toward the Lord. We think of God as our our buddy, our friend, our helper. And rarely, if ever, are we gripped by the terror of a holy God. God is holy. and You are not. God is all-powerful, and you are not. God is supernatural, and you exist in the natural realm. There is tremendous comfort in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men. But this is only a comfort if you have first seen your need. If you've first been gripped by the terror of a holy God. Have you ever been gripped by the fear of God? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you glimpsed in some small way the holiness of God? And in contrast, then, have you seen your sin exposed by the holiness of God? Have you ever confessed, as Peter did in our text, I am a sinful man? Such a confession will only come when we understand in some small way the holiness of God, and then in comparison, the depth of our own sin. Peter and those that were with him, they were gripped by the fear of God. Peter doesn't know what to do. And so he says to Jesus, depart from me. Depart from me. Now remember the setting. Peter is out in a boat with Jesus. They're out in the deep water. What is Peter saying? What does he want Jesus to do? In some ways, Peter's reaction here reminds me of the demon-possessed man we studied in Luke 4. Now, there are major differences between these two. I'm not suggesting that they are the same. I think it's clear that the motivation behind the demon's words and Peter's words are totally different. But there are some interesting similarities in what they said. Look again at what the demon said in Luke chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. And in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. The devil's words, or the demon's words, to Jesus. This demon knew that he was sinful. He knew that Jesus was holy. And so he said, let us alone. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee? Peter, in this moment of clarity, when he saw his sinfulness and Jesus' holiness, Peter says, depart from me. Depart from me. This is what sin does. Sin separates us from God. It's been this way since the very beginning. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, after Adam and Eve had committed the first sin, we read, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You cannot know the power and holiness of God and be comfortable in your sin. Sin and our Savior cannot coexist. One will drive out the other. There is a spiritual paradox which manifests itself in man's relationship with God. Men earnestly seek the presence of God, but as soon as God appears, they are struck with terror and they want to get away from Him. In God's absence, men call out for Him because our conscience and nature show us that we are miserable without Him. But when God appears to sinful men, they are all, without exception, overcome by the realization of their own sinfulness, and they desire immediately separation again from God. So far in our text, we've seen the power of God demonstrated in the miracle that Jesus performed. And then we've seen the fear of God as Peter realized what had happened. He's seized by astonishment, terror, after Jesus performed this miracle. But now look at what Jesus said to Peter. At the end of verse 10 through verse 11, we see the call of God. The call of God. Again, look at the end of verse 10. And Jesus said unto him, Simon... Fear not. Fear not. If there is any question still about whether or not Peter was afraid, here is the answer. Jesus tells him, fear not. Fear not. Peter has said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus replies, fear not. Only Jesus can remove the penalty for sin. Only Jesus can satisfy the demands of God's justice. And so it is that when we are fearful because of our sin, it is only Jesus who can comfort us with words like this. Fear not. If you're fearful because of your sin, that is good. Come to Christ. You may fear not. Again, compare this interaction that Jesus has here with Peter to the interaction Jesus had with the demon in chapter 4. The demon said, let us alone. And we're told in that passage in verse 35 that Jesus rebuked him and said, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Jesus didn't go anywhere, but he cast that demon out. Jesus did not give any assurance to that demon. Jesus didn't speak any comforting words to that demon. Jesus drove him away. Why? Because he's a demon. There is no redemption for the fallen angels. God will be glorified through his judgment upon them. There is no alternative for the fallen angels. They will face the eternal judgment of God for their sin of rebellion. Now, Peter was just as guilty as any demon. Sin doesn't make us guilty by degrees. You are either sinful or you are innocent. And so by that measure, Peter was in a sinful camp. He was just as guilty as the demon in chapter 4 in that sense. But Jesus doesn't drive Peter away. Jesus does not rebuke Peter. Rather, he responds to Peter with these words that are full of hope and assurance. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Why does Jesus say this to Peter? You know, Peter was right. He was sinful. He fully deserved God's judgment. And with some awareness of God's power and God's holiness, Peter realized that he could hope for nothing more. But unlike the fallen angels, God has a plan of redemption for mankind. 
God would glorify Himself through the redemption of Peter. God would glorify Himself by using Peter as a disciple and an apostle. And so, Jesus responds to Peter with these words that are full of hope and encouragement. Fear not. And then Jesus continued and said, From henceforth thou shalt catch men. This was to mark a change in the relationship between Jesus and Peter, as well as Andrew, James, and John, who were also present. Before this, they had some familiarity with Christ. Andrew had even told Peter, We have found the Messiah. But now they were to follow Jesus continually, and they would be used by him mightily. Now look at how this account ends in verse 11. Verse 11 begins and says, And when they brought their ships to land, they went back to the shore, and they took their fish to market, and then they went home to rest. It's been a long day. They're tired. But they made plans to meet Jesus the next Sabbath day at the synagogue. No. They returned to shore, and were told there in verse 11, they forsook all and followed him. They left everything. Their nets, their boats, this huge haul of fish. The call of Jesus held more weight for them than the call of all these earthly things, and so they forsook them all and followed Jesus. When riches increase, we are the most tempted to place our trust in them instead of in Christ. But don't set your heart on the things of this world. They are passing away. They are passing away. We must be willing to forsake anything and everything that would keep us from following Christ as we ought. I titled this sermon from this verse, Forsake All and Follow Christ. Now in this text, Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to a very specific ministry, which required them to literally forsake all that they had and to follow Jesus. They had to physically leave their nets and their boats and their fish. They had to leave it all to follow Jesus. Now, we might not be called upon by the Lord to literally forsake all and to follow Him. To physically leave your car and your house and your place of employment to follow Jesus. But the call of the gospel is a call to die. A call to die. To die to sin. To die to this world. To die to our flesh and all of its lusts. And in this sense, we are all called upon to forsake all and follow Christ. There's a gospel application from this for those who have never been born again. If you've never been saved, if you are not trusting in Christ for salvation, consider this question. What is the price of your soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? The Bible teaches that there is nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. You don't even have possession of your soul. Sometimes our, our culture jokes about, oh, this man sold his soul to the devil. Can't be done. Don't have your soul. The just wages of your sin means that your soul is held in debt to the judgment of God in death. And there's nothing you can do to redeem your soul. But there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your soul cannot be redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but it can be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. From our text this morning, see the power of God, see the holiness of God, see your own sin, and flee to Jesus Christ for salvation. Nothing you could ever possess 
is worthy of your soul. Forsake it all and follow Christ. There is also a gospel living application here for Christians. What is keeping you, Christian, from following Jesus as you ought? What are you holding on to as part of this world? It could be a possession, or a person, or an attitude, or anything else. Whatever it is, forsake it and follow Christ. I'm reminded of that famous line from Jim Elliot's journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You can't keep these things where you're going, Christian. Leave it and follow Christ. Forsake all and follow Christ. In many ways, the past year has been difficult for me. A lot has changed from the way things were a year ago. And a few months ago, I was sitting over there, Sunday morning service, and I was feeling sorry for myself. And I was feeling a little self-righteous as well. And as I was sitting there wallowing in my feelings and thinking about all that I have lost, and what's more, all that I had willingly given up, this question suddenly came across my mind. Lord, how much do you want from me? How much do you want from me? That was a question I asked the Lord out of pride and self-pity. How much do you want from me? And immediately I was convicted and the Holy Spirit brought one word to my mind. Everything. Everything. Is he worthy of everything? Yes. A thousand times yes. Forsake all and follow Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the conviction that comes from your word. Lord, we pray that we would not leave here and continue on in the path that we've been going. Lord, convict us. Help us to let these things go. Let nothing keep us from following you as we ought. May we obey your word this morning. May we forsake all and follow Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.